standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to this week's Sunday Chops. Hannah here. I'm recording this on Thursday, so it might be sunny as hell when you listen to this. It might be tipping down with rain, but I hope you're having a nice weekend regardless. This week, I'm chatting to comedian, writer and BAFTA winner Sophie Willen about the first series of her excellent new comedy, Alma's Not Normal, which was released on Monday. You can watch it all on the iPlayer now. Some of you might already have done that, in which case you can just tuck right in. If you haven't yet watched it, I have a message of caution for you. In the first half of this interview, which is everything up to the outbreak, Sophie and I are talking around the series about being branded the voice of the working class, about learning how to take a compliment and about misguided views of the North. In the second half, we're talking about things that happen in Alma's Not Normal and it will contain spoilers. So if you've not watched it, maybe press pause when you get to the ad break, go watch all six episodes and we'll be waiting here with a conversation about growing up around addiction and a lot more besides. You're welcome. How good, Sophie, are you at taking compliments? Because you've got a lot coming. I'm not great at it, but I think there is an art, isn't there, in just saying thank you very much and just, like, taking it. We did a little um, screening when it came on telly the other day and my cousin, because I just kept being, you know, oh, thanks, right, off with Bob now, you know. (laughs) My cousin jumped up and did a speech and said, stop being so bloody humble, you've done really well. So I think sometimes it's good to just get over that, isn't it, a bit and... You know, and I think women are worse at it, aren't they? Totally. I think women are worse at it. I think working class people are worse at it. And I think the fact that you and I aren't face to face is going to make it a lot easier because, because, yeah, I mean, I'm terrible at it. I I probably don't get as many as you've got in the last 24 hours. But my answer tends to be, oh, sharp. It was rubbish. (laughs) It's that same thing as if you buy something and someone says, that looks nice. I always feel the need Mm. to say, oh, I bought it in a charity shop. Yeah, Louisa Milan has a whole bit, doesn't she, on, um, you know, a woman being complimented for a dress and then going, oh, my God, well, it's not even nice. I'm going to look like shit. There's a whole bit. And I thought, that's so accurate. Yeah. You know, it's so true, isn't it? It's just a really weird thing. It's like confidence is not something that we're, we're allowed to have. It seems as arrogant, you know. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Now, Alma's not normal. People will be able to watch that when they're listening to this because it was released last night on the Beep and on the iPlayer Mm. in its entirety. Your pilot won a BAFTA, which is pretty unusual. So tell me, how much pressure did that put on you? Well, I I only found out about the BAFTA when I was in. We were already filming Alma. Yeah, it was the second day of filming and I got the nomination. My grandma had actually passed away the night before so on the second day of filming, my grandma passed away. I got up in the morning, went into makeup. I got all these messages saying you've been nominated for a BAFTA. So it was just bizarre. Then four weeks later, which is four weeks into the shoot, we had two weeks left to go. It's the night I won the BAFTA. So it was fabulous because it gave the whole sort of set and crew and everything just a big lift before the end, you know. But yeah, I mean, it was absolutely baffling. I was not expecting it at all. Well, it was well, watch out, compliments coming. It was certainly well deserved. And this first series, Sophie, what an amazing job you've done. It's, it is totally brilliant. And I say that as someone who grew up working class and grew up around addiction. And I think it's absolutely spot on. Oh, thank, you. thank you. You see, there we go. <laughs> How did you find writing in lockdown? It was both a blessing and a curse, really. On the one hand, it was brilliant because you've got undiluted time, 
you know, not much other work going on. So you can really focus. On the other hand, it's quite isolating, writing completely alone in a tiny flat. You know what I mean? So that was a bit tricky. We kept going to my boyfriend's parents because a bit more space there. So that was helpful a bit. But yeah, it was a difficult process, I think. I think getting into a space with other people, having sounding boards, doing live reads, all those things that you normally would get to do were completely missed, you see, with with lockdown. Mm. I think as well, there was something about lockdown that sort of really made people start to ruminate on stuff. You know, I know a lot of people that said to me things like, God, I started thinking about my mum and my mum's been dead for 15 years and I haven't thought about her as much as I am doing now in lockdown. There was something quite sort of, mm. especially at the start, oddly apocalyptic about it, that you it, you it it did dredge up a lot of stuff, I think, from people's own personal histories. Yeah. I mean, I think for me that there was already just quite a lot going on. You know, personally, my mum is in a secure ward, so that had its own problems because it's actually really intense to be in a lockdown yeah, in, in a ward like that. My grandma was passing away with cancer. So there was just low. I didn't really have time to ruminate, to be honest, because I was writing the sitcom and then all the chaos of, of kind of what was going on with my own family was very present, really. So it just was, was a lot. This is what these do, these big global crises, don't they? Yeah. All these, they throw up loads of stuff, especially for sort of vulnerable people as well. So I think that was kind of just trying to manage that whilst also write a sitcom that's got a similar sort of vein to it was quite a challenging enough really i bet can we talk about that Mm. name alma's not normal Um, i'm guessing there is a certain level of irony in that given normal is a kind of flexible word what is normal who does grow up in a normal family well i think that's the irony for me with with alma's not normal because actually it's very normal isn't it most people have quite chaotic family setups or there's some trauma there's some stuff there isn't there so i think i wanted to kind of play with that as an idea you know, but then also they have, you know, I think all the female characters in it tend to have this other world quality where they just don't quite fit in with what is considered normal to where they're from, you know, and they're all very larger than life. You know, they're all, they're like the big peacock in the room, you know what I mean? But yeah. There's four big peacocks in the room. So, and just playing with that idea of normal has always been something I've found interesting because I've always felt outside of, you know, what is normal really or considered normal, Yeah. I've met some people over the years that have issues, I would say. I don't mean direct mental health issues, but I mean, you know, hang-ups or whatever. And then I meet their parents and I think, God, where did your hang-ups come from? Because your parents (laughs) seem well normal. Yeah. I I can remember having a flatmate who, oh, she was just terrible. She was just so depressed about not having a boyfriend. And it was because her parents had a happy marriage. And, well, and she, that's interesting. And, so it's a problem either way, then, isn't exactly it? Exactly <laughs> that, because I always assumed it was you had trouble when your parents had a sort of a, a fucked up marriage. But yeah, yeah, to meet someone who was like, hang on, hang on, your <laughs> parents were so happy it's ruined your love life. That's a really, it's a really wet, rare way to look that's at funny. it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I suppose there's always stuff, isn't there? It's like that poem that's in Alma, you know, they, they fuck you up, your mum and dad. Yeah. You know, Philip Larkin, they may not mean to, but they do. It's unfortunately the case for everybody, isn't it? It's it's mad, really. Yeah. Tolstoy says something, I think, about how happy families are, are all the same, but unhappy families are all unhappy in their own way. Um, yeah. With, yeah, which is much the same effect, but not as funny yeah. and doesn't rhyme. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
I've mentioned this word a couple of times now, working class. Mm. I would like to applaud you for writing something and putting working class issues at the forefront of your writing. And obviously that comes from your background. And as a working class mm. person, hooray. Just oh. It's just amazing to see it. But I kind of, every time I see an interview with you by someone who I'm guessing, you know, having been in the media myself, I'm guessing probably mm. was middle class or middle class person yeah. interviewed you what's that like do you feel like you're becoming slightly you know the voice of the working class which is a ludicrous thing to say obviously because working class people don't have a singular experience I know that, that I've always struggled with that so I did a show in Edinburgh branded in uh, 2017 and it was about identity labeling and stuff and I picked northern female working class and basically spent the hour breaking down each one of those and why I fit that narrative and also why I don't fit that narrative and how singular those narratives are, particularly when you've got Oxbridge people telling you how working class you are. Yeah. It's something I've always struggled with a bit. You know, it's kind of this idea of what class means and the idea of what the North is as well. Yeah. You know, everybody's got an idea of the North and, and, and class very much the same, like it's a, out of a kitchen sink drama before Thatcher or something. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yes, I do struggle with that. I mean, also just let people crack on with it. But for me, I just, yeah, I think these labels can be very intense and they're just easy for other people to digest you, but they don't actually fit the full human being, do they? They can be quite singular. Yeah, like you say. Especially when it's particular sort of Oxbridge types who are deciding you're the voice of the North or the voice of the working class or, you know, it's a female comedian. That's another one, isn't it? So then suddenly you have to represent now all of women in comedy you know yeah it is ridiculous because I can remember you saying about you know northern and working class experience a couple of years ago it's back when we were still an online magazine somebody in the in the times wrote a column about going to Leeds for the day and it was the most hilarious thing I'd ever read in my life it was oh my god I remember that it's like they'd gone to a a zoo or something they were like oh I can't believe this place exists like a northern working class safari, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was bizarre that I remember that that woman. Yeah, because I, I remember thinking, God, is she any idea? And it was only a few years ago, wasn't it? it wasn't yeah. a long time ago. Yeah, I, I would say maybe. Two, three years. Yeah, yeah. It's one thing to think it; it's another mm. thing to write it down and have it published in yeah. the newspaper. This look at me, look, look how ignorant I am. I've already written yeah. off half of the country. That's why I wanted to show that in Alma. You know, they're not. I, I had to joke in my stand-up, you know, we're all eating hummus now and we know how to spell it. You know, don't worry about <laughs> us. We're not in a cave trying to make fire. Like, things have progressed. So I think there's just something about wanting to represent that on screen as well, you know, that just it's a bit more fluid than people think it is. And actually, it can be quite a cosmopolitan place, the North, can't it? And working-class people yeah. are, are more diverse and different than you might expect and, you know, educated, you know. Alma's yeah. uh, grandma is into psychology. You know, she's, you see her books, you know, the, the what is it, The Power of the Orgasm or whatever. She's clearly doing her own thing as a working-class woman, this idea that you have to fit one singular experience and be one type of person. I think, for me, I wanted to completely break down. Now, talking of Alma's grandma, that is the yeah. amazing Lorraine Ashbourne. And you also have yeah. the tremendous Siobhan Finneran, who is playing Alma's mum, Lynn. I mean, how delighted were you when you got those two? And tell me about 
what it was like working with them? They're just fabulous. I mean, you know, both of them were, you know, an offer only. So there's a risk there as well, isn't there? Because you give them an offer, you don't know if they'll interpret the character how you see the character. Mm. But as soon as they got the scripts, I mean, they were just incredible. I sat with Siobhan before we went to screen and just talked to her about the drama triangle, which is kind of like a social dynamic that plays out in society sometimes, but also in families. There's the rescuer, the, the victim and the persecutor. And, and everybody's fighting for the role of victim or rescuer. And it mm. plays out in a family dynamic that's unhealthy. So I brought that down to Siobhan and talked to her about Lynn's kind of victim slash persecutor thing going on. Did that with her for a day. She didn't act any scenes out. Then she went, right, OK, I'll see you on set sort of thing. Just kind of talked through the psychology of the character. The next day she turns up on set and she just completely is in character. You know, she just completely got this woman. It's like she embodied her spirit or something. I mean, it was amazing. Same with Lorraine. I mean, they both just took to it so well and they've been so supportive with me. You know, really, really supportive and you know, really positive and passionate to be there. It's been fabulous, really. I've been very lucky. I don't know how Siobhan Finneran talks with those teeth in her mouth. It's quite the achievement. Yeah. It looks yeah. really uncomfortable, but it is It is an excellent gag. Well, I think that gets her into character, because as soon as she puts them in, she just morphs into Lynn then. You've got quite a few other t- uh, top women in there, including a couple that we know. Jade Adams, obviously, who is brilliant. Yeah. And Tanya Moore is in there briefly, yeah. uh, who is also tremendous. Yeah. Uh, you and Jade, I'm guessing, are friends from the circuit. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I've known Jade for years, so I kind of wrote it with her in mind, that character. I thought that might be the case. It's absolutely brilliant, yeah. talk about sex work and I know that's going to cause <laughs> some sort of like oh god and and what I mean by that is uh, maybe I should start by saying I, f- I find the whole debate about sex work absolutely exhausting yeah. so we don't need to go into that but what mm. I do want to say is that I think that you're a very valuable voice in this because of two things that aren't going on particularly in this debate at the moment is number one you know mm. what you're talking about And number two, you bring some really vital nuance. There's a brilliant conversation in this between Jade's character and your Aunt Alma about Alma having had a bad day at work and trying to make the point that when you have a bad day at work and what you do is a job that people judge you for, they use it as an excuse to sweep in. And I would say it's probably the same if you're in a relationship Mm -hmm. with someone that people don't like that they use it as a chance to seize on it and say, well, this is why you shouldn't be doing it. And Alma says you should just be able to have a bad day. And I think think the nuance there is incredible. I mean, like I say, we don't have to go into the the conversation about whether sex work is work and that that whole nasty debate that rages. But I'm guessing you also feel like there should be more nuance in this conversation. I think so. I just wanted to present both sides of the argument and not give a solidified opinion as well. You know, Leanne is actually quite judgmental. Alma is actually quite deluded. So they're both in the way, in the wrong, you could say. Yeah. But also each of them have really valid points. You know, Leanne brings up the fact that, you know, she's had a difficult childhood. The stats of people that occur experience that are escorts is crazy. So that is a fact. That is, there's a truth in that. 
Then on the other side of it, well, actually, why does everybody feel that they have the right to psychoanalyse sex workers? You know what I mean? Yeah. And actually, why do we politicise sex workers in such a way? So I think I just wanted to present both sides of the argument with nuance because I feel that both arguments are valid, actually, as somebody who knows that industry. I still think both are valid, and I wanted to present the good and the bad of it, really, without going, this is good, this is bad, you know. The word nuance, like you say, I think is just so important and gets so lost in all these political debates, doesn't it? Yeah. You know? Yeah. I heard Fern yeah. Brady chatting the other day because she also has some experience yeah. in, in this field. And and it was really interesting to hear her. She was talking about stripping. When she was talking about I thought, oh, Jesus, you really understand men. It's given you an, another window that most of us women don't look through to sort of judge yeah. the psyche of men. And I found it really fascinating. Yeah, I hope that comes across in Alma a bit as well. And again, there's so many different types of people, isn't there, that you meet. But there is an element of that that loneliness and that desperation sometimes, which I think, you know, you do see in that. But I just wanted to present lots of different cases, you know, rather than just say it's all this or it's all that. Yeah. Or, you know, just kind of be, be as open to many different things as possible. And I think the, the clients are very human you know, in, in it, they're, they're clearly, you know, human beings, if you know what I mean. Yeah. All human beings, not uh, kind of just caricatures, even though they're very small kind of vignettes that you see with the, the escort in it. They kind of, you can see that they're full characters with feelings and all sorts going on themselves, you know. I have to say, it did really make me laugh when you stole the dog. Yeah. <laughs> and you were, ah, now see, here's a question. You were in your bra and pants in that scene. How... Yeah. How comfortable are you doing that? How does that feel for you? The bra and knickers doesn't bother me, but the sex scenes, you know, can be more difficult. These were often comedy scenes, so they were often easier. But there's the odd one that I found quite vulnerable and difficult. But um, I asked for a closed set, which I didn't know you could do at first. And then I found out you could do that, and that made it a lot easier rather than having sort of 60 people staring Mm. at you. So that made it a lot easier. But the bra and knickers is probably the least of the worry it's all the actual sex stuff that's a bit intense isn't it but you do just get kind of into it because uh, it's funny when you're the writer because you write all this stuff and then think but I'm doing this for my I've got to act this <laughs> you know but then you don't want to pop out of it you know so but I, it'd be interesting to know how other female writers that star in stuff you know Rose Matafeo, Ashling B, May imagine they've all had to do sex scenes recently haven't they so I'd be really interested to see how they're found that process writing it for themselves and then having to deliver it because you can't be annoyed with the writer because it's you yeah <laughs> I heard Sharon yeah. Horgan talking about this I don't know if, if yeah I don't know if it was in an interview that we did or if it was in an interview that somebody else did but she was yeah she was saying the only way that they could really get catastrophe made like that was to play those roles themselves because then they yeah then they could push it that far because yeah. they knew that they would that they would do it and that another mm. actor wouldn't say no. And I think with that scene, because it's quite quite a dark scene there about, you know, consent or... Yeah. But again, wanting that to end, you know, like you said about the dog, yeah. wanting that to end with the fun because these women are not to be victimised in it on, on screen for me. It's not about going, look at these poor victims, you know, actually the balls is hell, do you know what I mean? Mm. They'll fight that, they'll t- steal the dog, they'll have a laugh about him in the car and they'll move on. So I think I wanted to show that like, kind of culture between other escorts as well. Like when they're in the car on the way there and they're having a laugh together, 
two of them talking about another client they'd had. I think that's such a kind of common thing with escorts to kind of have that bond and banter between each other and to be able to laugh at everything and yeah. almost it's like they're doing a stand-up gig together do you know what I mean yeah they're able to really have a laugh I think that I really wanted to show that bond and that that's how a kind of coping strategy with the job is having been able to laugh about it and then at the end of that episode when Alma says to Leanne I'd like to laugh about it with you because that's a key bit I think for escorts is being able to laugh the madness of the experiences, you know, yeah. and not becoming the victim. It's something I really wanted to show, that resilience and humour, you know. Yeah. Well, and I think this that, that leads back to the conversation about being working class, about, you know, the North, mm. about a lot of those things is is you have a kind of defensive thing of, don't pity me. I, and when yeah. I say you, I mean one, and I mean me as I do, well. Yeah, I know what you mean. Don't piss me. And then that comes with the humour. That's why we're so funny because exactly it just, that. that's the survival technique. You don't want people to feel sorry for you. Go, oh God, and, and you don't want to depict things, you know. And, and I think that's the thing when, when you've had experiences, you know, like what what's in Alma, is to depict those. You depict them with joy and optimism and humour because actually that's how you've experienced them. Even though there's been a lot of trauma and sadness and different things the ultimate resource is humor isn't it i think yeah well that leads me to addiction which you know mm. i have talked about quite a lot because my dad was an alcoholic and i yeah. talked to a lot of other children of alcoholics since he died well i mean you'll understand this there's a kind of interesting dynamic that you have with the addict while they're still alive where you feel like you're the keeper of their secrets and then when my yeah. dad died, I felt I was able to talk about it more. And every single one of them, every single one of them has told me a story in which they are like crying, laughing. And I think if somebody else walked into the room and heard this story, they they just wouldn't understand why it's yeah. funny that yeah. your parent has done this thing. <laughs> they would be heartbroken if their parent did it or they yeah. would be horrified. And yet we laugh at it. I think episode six of this, because obviously Lynn... Has, is addicted and that's bubbling under the surface and then in episode yeah. six this explodes and I have to say Sophie I found this to be a very powerful very moving episode and I tell you when I finished watching it at the end I actually rang my brother just to chat to him oh, just because it yeah. made me think yeah. about you know my my brother yeah, yeah. a lot of the conversations Alma has when she's talking to her mum through mm-hmm. the door Although heroin and alcohol are very, very, very different things, actually, the excuses you hear back are almost identical, almost yeah, identical, yeah. and the sort of the things that you say. So I think it's really, really important because Alma says herself, nobody understands this. How do I explain this to people? Nobody understands it. The representations of addiction that are out there, how accurate do you find any of them? And what were you trying to achieve when you talked about addiction here? Well, I think, first of all, felt really passionate for a long time about humanizing the addict on the screens because I've never seen I think of that many fur depictions so first of all about humanizing that person showing why they're funny and lovable and and showing why actually you want to fight for them you know and then in the last episode for me showing how they then let you down mm. you know and how it, again about the nuance they're not they're not evil, but actually they're no fucking good sometimes. Do you know what I mean? And that whole relationship you have because they're like a child that you want to look after yeah. and support. And you see how they've been screwed over by a system or whatever. But then in a way you take too much responsibility for them. And they, 
ultimately, not always, but often they'll let you down. Yeah. So I think, again, I wanted to show both sides of that and, and, and actually just show the effects of a, an addict on the whole family system. You know, Alma says about, you know, how do you grieve for the living dead? You know, if you, someone dies, you can put flowers on the grave and people understand it and you've got this self-contained space for your grief. I think that's the hardest thing about being in a family with an addict, isn't it? It's because mm. it never really ends. So you're in a permanent state of kind of grief with that person that can be quite a difficult space to be in. So I think that was important for me. Mm. And then also for the, the parent of the addict. I mean, we don't get to see them depicted fairly often on screen, I don't think. No. You know, often they get blamed. I wanted to show the blame, you know, that social workers and systems they put on you. I mean, they're always blaming the the, the family. Yeah. I mean, I get blamed as the daughter of an addict by, by people at my mum's hospital, you know, the social workers, the way they speak to me sometimes. It's like, you know, I, I'm the parent and I've let her down. So it just, it, I wanted to show that the whole system is kind of up against these people, you know. And it's interesting you say that because they are they are like a child a lot of the time and you need to talk yeah. to them like they're a child and, and treat yeah. them like a child, but you have no authority over them like you would a child. Yeah. When they're off and it's wild, it's crazy, isn't it? It's really, really tough and really unpredictable as all that stuff, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and I think, but then again, like you said about showing the humour in it, but because we normalise it, because we've got that base as normal, yeah. then the humour is more accessible to us. So I suppose that's what I wanted to do with Alma, is quickly make my mum a normal person for them to be engaged with on the screen. And then from there, they would laugh with her, they'd cry with her, they'd feel angry with her, they'd be sad when she makes a mistake. So they're invested in her, in a way that most people in society are not invested in people like, like Lynn, mm. you know. So I think that was important for me. Do, do you think people will get Lynn? Do you think people will see her as a sympathetic character? I, I feel like they do. I feel like the response I've had is that they do get her. You know, I think obviously, she, she, you know, Siobhan Thinnerin, so as much as we've yeah. done makeup and got the teeth in, she's still not quite, yeah. you know, how, how heroin addicts quite look, if, you know. So that's probably a bit more digestible for people. The fact that she doesn't quite look like an actual real heroin mm. addict, you know. But also because of the comedy and the colour of the show, you know, I wanted it to be really bright, you know, and have loads of one-liners, you know, and actually we put the camera on Lynn so we can see her anxiety, we can see her vulnerability. I think all of that's accessible for, for people. So I think, yeah, I think they will get her, actually. I think that, for me, is one of the most important challenges mm. is can I get people to love and invest and understand this character that often in society is demonised and feared, you know. Is it too soon for me to ask whether there might be a second series? I'd, I'd love to know myself. I mean, <laughs> I'm just waiting now to see, yeah, <laughs> see what they say. Oh, God, I hope mm. so. I mean, surely, surely, I mean, you can't, you cannot engage in this speculation <laughs> that I'm just about <laughs> to, but surely... Public request, please renew this show. I think it's really valuable. Um, oh, thank you. I, I really yeah. do. Can we can we talk about one more thing? What before mm. you go, Sophie? I know you're crazy busy this morning. The Stories of Care, the project that you're involved in. Can yeah. I can I hear a bit more about that? How you're? I was going to say giving back, but that makes yeah, that is the right word. I think. Ever you're sort of trying to bring some other people along with you, which is again an incredibly laudable thing to be doing. 
oh, thank you. Well, here I go again. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, Stories of Care, I founded in 2015. And it basically is for care experienced people to do like a 20-week writing course we develop a children's anthology that is then published and then goes out to children in care. So I think the idea with that was basically, you know, having people who have actually experienced things be the people behind the stories that are written about them. So a kid in care can read a story that might be about a hedgehog who's living with their grandma or whatever, but they also know that the writer is somebody who was in care themselves, you know. So I think it's about the whole process of of it being care-experienced-led. And those... uh, participants that we work with we do like creative and professional development over several years so uh the last participants on the last project and some of them are now actually company members uh, producers on it company producers so they get a, a wage and they now work for the company production assistants as well we're about to set up another strand which will be a comedy strand where i'll get people basically in the room to t- talk about their ideas for writing comedy scripts career experienced people and develop the first pilots with them. That's amazing. That would be great for me. I'd be really excited to see new voices coming through and see how I can support them to, to, you know, tell their stories in the future so that we do kind of have a a different industry, you know. Mm. On Alma, um, I did a training scheme with Care Experience People, so it's a paid training scheme, which for me it's got to be. I don't believe any scheme the volunteering participants even the participants on Alma are paid a wage because you can't expect working class people to be involved in a project if they, they have no money yeah you know what I mean so that thing of not economically supporting the project I've never understood it so on this Alma training scheme everybody got paid a wage we had someone in the production office who was training up as a production assistant two runners one in set design and all of them have gone on to do other things. Beatrice has now gone straight onto a Sky series. It was her first thing oh, on that's Alma. Amazing. Yeah, it's, it's fabulous. And I think that thing for me about just making sure we're, we're changing the industry and making it a more diverse place, particularly with care experienced people, working class people, people of colour, making sure we're just filling it from the inside out. The idea of what is normal, going back to the word normal, changes. You know, yeah. I had somebody say about the care experienced person, oh, well, they need to learn, you know, just like everybody else. And I, I, I challenged that and said, well, what do you mean by everybody else? Because ultimately, you're saying everybody else, the middle class who are in tele are the norm, they yeah. are the everybody, and everybody else is an other, that's othering right there. And actually what we want to do is change this industry so much that we have to think differently about how we approach things and accept that everybody has different needs because of where they're coming from. And there's no sense of everybody and what is normal. And then, oh, you're lucky to be here as another. So I think but the only way to do that is to fill the industry full of full of more diverse people, isn't it? Yeah. So I think for me, that's a passion, really. Oh, absolutely yeah. agreed. And I think there is now there is like a, a like exactly what you say, diversity. There is a real push to make things diverse, like when you said about children's stories, you know, so yeah. so to put books out there in which people have two mums or two dads yeah, or, yeah. you know, mixed race parents. But like you say, I don't think people think not everybody lives with their parents. I think sometimes yeah. they think their parents might both be women or their parents might be mixed race or their, their parents might be these other things, but nobody thinks what if they're not actually their parents every year it used to drive me mad that I would go and buy my dad a father's day card and most father's day cards generally offer like there's one of about three options 
One is like a sporting based thing and my dad wasn't into sport. The second option is you are the best dad in the world. Well, I mean, he wasn't. And the third option it was sit and enjoy yourself and have a drink on Father's Day. And I used to think, do you know how many men there are that shouldn't be told by their kids to drink more? But that's, that's the only option that you would get. And I just used to think there are so many dads that are alcoholics. Why do they sell so many cars that are all about booze? Why does nobody think about this? They just, they just don't. I know when you're a kid, you do really notice these things. I mean, I never got sad about it, but you know, it's like Mother's Day. You know, everybody stops class so they can make a card for the mum. Well, that mm. wasn't possible for me. I mean, I wasn't living with her. You know, father's dead. I don't know who the guy is. You, you know, this point. You, so just stuff like that. And then yeah. Christmas, the focus on Christmas. At least with Mother's Day and Father's Day, you can go, oh, right, fine, and move on and walk around and live your life. Mm. But Christmas, I mean, it's like everything stops so people can present this idea of what a family is. Well, yeah. that, that's a very difficult time, you know, for co-experienced people. I mean, that is... Uh, Lem Sisse actually has a, a, an event called the Christmas Dinners, and he puts on yes. a big luxury Christmas dinner for co-experienced people. And I used to volunteer at it from the first one for the first few years and host one in Manchester. And it's fantastic. But the fact that it's needed because of the intense focus we have on Christmas, I think it's very frustrating, you know. Yeah. Sophie, it's been absolutely brilliant talking to you. Um, you too. I'm just going to say yeah. it one more time. Alma's not normal. Totally brilliant. Everybody should watch it. Oh, thank you very much. It's been lovely chatting to you. Standard issue for all women.